0: grab your Bibles we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28 or if you don't have a Bible there should be on the screen behind me the scriptures or on your screen if you're watching online with us this morning. Matthew 28 is what we'll be looking at and we are in the middle of a series if you haven't been with us if you're our guest today we've been in the book of Hebrews today so or this spring so we're going off track a little bit today for Easter just to look at the account of the resurrection from Matthew's Gospel. And we're gonna look at the first 15 verses. The first 15 verses. Matthew 28 verse 1 through 15. Hear the reading of God's Word. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold there was a great earthquake where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold he is going before you to Galilee there you will see him see I have told you so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples and behold Jesus met them and said greetings and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him and then Jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me and while they were going behold some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests and all or that all that had taken place and then when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said tell people his disciples came by night and stole him stole him away while we were asleep And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the greatest story, the greatest story. Let's pray before we begin. Father, uh, we are coming to your word today amazed and in awe that you would do such an incredible act not for people that deserved it not for people that were worthy of it but people who had rebelled against you people who had sinned against you people who had even killed you that you would rise again to give us newness of life and so we pray today as we celebrate that God that you would open up our hearts and minds to know what it means to live that out to live the story of the resurrection in our everyday life may you Give us the gift of faith to do that, to live not according to the stories of this world, but according to the story that you have given us in your Son, Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been called the shortest story ever told. And we're not exactly sure who told the story or where it came from or or what it's like, but but we know this, and, and legend has it, that it came from the famous writer Ernest Hemingway. And the legend goes like this, that Ernest Hemingway was uh, at another writer's house and they had this party where writers were gathering together and sharing ideas and and they were gathered around this table, all these authors, and and they were sharing things. And and apparently Ernest Hemingway made a a statement. He said this. He said, I bet I can write a, a story a short story with just six words, just six words. And everybody around him, they're like, oh, no, six words. You can't write a real story. I mean, it might be some words, but it's not going to be a good story. And so they're going around the table talking trash about it, and you can't do this. And he says, all right, put some money on it. And so he puts $10 down on the table, and he says, if you don't think I can write this story with six words, then you put money on the table. And all the guys put money on the table and he said, if, if you win, you, you'll get paid $10 each and if I win, I'll get all the money. Okay. And so he grabs a napkin, he begins to write, scribble on the napkin, and here's, here's his story. You ready? Six words. These six words. For sale, baby shoes never worn. For sale, baby shoes never worn that's it and he he hands the napkin over to them and he says here you go a beginning a middle and an end and everybody's like what And, and you look at the story and and in those six words you've got these elements these themes of loss and death and longing for hope and you've got characters and there's all that implied in just six words the shortest story ever told in six words now, it doesn't matter what, what kind of story it is, how long the story it is. If, if you've been living long enough, you know that stories shape you. They shape you whether they're short, whether they're long, whether you're aware of it, whether you're not aware of it. I mean, they could be stories that are casual stories from the latest Marvel movie. They could be stories from, you know, the, the Netflix show that you're binging. They, they could be stories that you tell around the dinner table with your friends or with your family members. They could be stories that are you know, consuming you in our marketing culture where you see hundreds of ads every day. They're telling you these stories. It doesn't matter what kind of story or where it comes from or how long it is, it's shaping you. Right? Stories are, are what give us a sense of identity. Stories are what give us a sense of of belonging and a sense of our values and our worth, and and, and we make sense of the world. We we connect with people. The the stories that we tell and the stories that we receive shape us. In fact, it's now a scientific fact, right? Neurosciences have have started studying this for a while, and and they're looking into all kinds of very uh, interesting things about how stories are shaping the brain. And some of the fascinating things they found is actually when we're interacting with stories, there's neurons that are activated in our brain that actually connect us with the person telling the story and give us this sense of empathy and compassion that we wouldn't have otherwise. Another interesting thing is is when we're interacting with stories, stories are, are activating both the right side and the left side of our brain. And so you're, you're actually learning with the fullness of your capacity. In other words, you, you learn better through story. Right? You, you actually remember better. And, and this is what they found. You remember better what you feel deeply. Because it's interacting with your feelings and your rational thinking. You, you remember it. It's shaping you. It's helping you to learn and understand and grow. And so with that kind of power in stories... The question is, what story is shaping you? What story is shaping you? It's not, is a story shaping you, but which one? How is it shaping you, right? There's, there's this sense that you might be thinking, oh, well, I mean, that sounds crazy, but I'm concerned about other things, right? I've got bills to pay. I've got kids that are in high school that I'm trying to parent. I, I've got you know, things happening at work. I'm trying to keep my boss happy. What are you talking about stories? Well, I want to tell you today as we talk for these next few minutes that I believe stories have the power to change all of that. And specifically the story of the resurrection. The story of the gospel centered in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It has the power to shape everything. Everything. And so the question is, what story is going to shape you? Because there's two competing stories we're going to see in this text. You're going to see the resurrection story competing against another story. And so let's look at that today. Let's jump in. If you're taking notes, the first point is the resurrection story. Let's look at how the the story goes in Matthew's Gospel. In verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, wouldn't you like to be called the other Mary, went to see the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and, and it's been this devastating and shocking three days. All right, if, you, if you're familiar at all with the story of Jesus, you're familiar with the, the shock that no one saw this coming. Jesus had been telling them, right? Jesus was telling them the whole time that this was coming, that he was going to die, and, and he even told them about his resurrection, and, and, and he's telling them these things, but they didn't really get it. They didn't understand what he was talking about, and so when he's crucified on a cross like a criminal at the hands of the state, you know they are shocked that this would happen to Jesus. How, how could Jesus, the Messiah, how could Jesus, this great teacher, this great miracle worker, how could he be crucified like this? How, how could all of this that we had hoped in be gone? And so these women, Mary and Mary, they come to the to the tomb, grieving. They don't come to the tomb expecting any hope. They come to the tomb expecting sorrow. They come to the tomb expecting death. They come to the the tomb expecting Jesus to do what every other dead person does, stay dead. That was their expectation. And then they come to the tomb, and we find out they're surprised In verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. I love that because it's this complete shift where now you see this grief and this sorrow and this pain and this discouragement and disappointment now shifts to this incredible picture of God's power. I mean, think about this. There was an earthquake when Jesus died on the cross in chapter 27, and now there's a second earthquake. I want to preach on that one day for Easter. Just, there's these earthquakes that are happening. There's, there's this shift. There's this sense of power where God is showing up, and then an angel from heaven comes, and he rolls back the stone, and this boss move, he just sits on it. Like, he's conquered it. And he, he's described as this man of, of lightning. His clothes were, you know, shining white, as bright as you can imagine. And when the guards see it, of course, they're, they're panicking, they fall down, and ironically, they're like dead men. You know, here's the body of Jesus that's supposed to be dead, and the guards of the Roman Empire are the ones who are like dead men. And then what happens? They go, and they they listen to the the angel, and and, and this is what the angel says. He gives the the greatest plot twist in any story ever. He, He says this, he says, He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Right. He invites them in to see for themselves, their own eyes, to go look and see the empty tomb. And they never expected this. I mean, no one expected this. They're filled with this strange mixture of fear and, and great joy, right? It's this strange feeling of hope. I'm afraid because if, if I hope too much, if it's, if it's really true, what's this going to mean? But, but there's so much joy. It's, it's this mega joy is what the word means. They just can't contain it. And so as they hear the angel speaking, the angel says, go and tell the disciples. And so they run to go tell the disciples. And on their way, they run into Jesus. And I love how Matthew introduces Jesus to the story. He just says one word greetings. I mean, you can just imagine his face with this grin of victory greetings. And they fall on their feet or on their hands and knees at at his feet and, and they begin to worship him. But Jesus says, Listen, don't be afraid, go and tell. Go and tell, right? His his initial reaction is not, yes, worship me, I'm resurrected. His initial reaction is, this story must be told. You have to go tell everybody. You have to go let them know because this story is worth telling. This story will change everything. Because that's what the resurrection does. The the reality of the resurrection changes everything. Especially when we live in in a culture and in a time with constant death. Right? We live in the story of death and despair all around us. We live in the story where this past year we've lived through one of the deadliest years in recent history. I mean, all of us are aware that millions have died across the world because of COVID-19, and, and we've watched as this last year has, has seen so much racial unrest and black and brown people killed at the hands of police and various different mass shootings, and, and you've got all kinds of terrible things happening. Racial targeting and horrible things, death all around us. There's so much. I mean, if you watch the news on a regular basis, your mental health is declining. In fact, they've done a study recently, and, and, and over the last decade, this is the lowest collective mental health that our country's had. People are depressed at higher rates than ever. A story of death, a story of despair. There's so much to grieve, you get overwhelmed by grief. There's so much to grieve that that it's consuming, and and you wonder, is is there any hope? Is is it possible for things to be better? Is it possible to to believe again? And and we're entering into this season of lament, where, where we take time to really bring that pain to God, bring that sorrow to God, And tell them about our grief. But the good news of the Bible, it says that though we grieve, we we do not grieve as others who do not have hope. I mean, what what he's saying there in that that passage is, yes, we grieve death. Yes, we grieve this sorrow. Yes, we grieve despair. We we don't ignore it. We don't look the other way and pretend like it doesn't exist. But we grieve differently. We grieve as people who have another story. Right? We grieve as people who are living in this story of death and despair, but we have another story that's more real. We have a story of life. We have a story of resurrection. We have a story of hope. And the story of resurrection is not just a story, it's a reality. Right? It's a reality. You see in this text, you see the the angel invite them in to see it for yourself. Well, then they go and tell the disciples, and then the disciples they see Jesus for themselves, and then Jesus spends the next few days showing himself to, the Bible says, over 500 people, eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. We have testimony from non-Christian historians in that time period who spoke of a risen Jesus. It's a reality, right? And then you see the early church and how it transformed people who once had no hope, who had no uh, direction, They, they had no power in their life, and then everything changes everything changes. And you see this testimony that this is more than than just an idea. This is a reality. And Paul would later say that if Jesus isn't alive, then we are the most to be pitied. But if he is, everything changes. If he is, nothing remains the same. If he rose from the dead like he promised, then then everything transforms. You you might be listening to that and you're thinking, man, I've I've tried the church before, I've tried Christianity, I've been where you're talking about, and and it didn't seem to work for me. It didn't seem like like it really changed anything in my life. In fact, things got worse. My life got harder, and and people at the church, they hurt me, and and this has happened, and and that's happened. And, And I want to tell you, first of all, we grieve with you. Like I want you to hear that from a pastor. Maybe you've never heard that from a pastor where you, you confess that the church has done terrible things. church has done terrible things. And we grieve that with you. We, we long for the day where, where that is not the truth. But listen to me carefully. Listen to me carefully. The church is not Jesus. The core of Christianity is not a church. The core of Christianity is a risen Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of a gospel is not that we're calling you into some group of people who are going to do everything right and say everything right and not sin against you. We're calling you to a Jesus who knows what it's like to be betrayed. We're calling you to a Jesus who knows what it's like to be wronged, who knows what it's like to have pain, who knows what it's like to be killed at the hands of injustice. That Jesus invites you to himself, a risen, living Savior, and it changes everything. But not everybody likes that story, and this is what happens in the text. We see in the second part the the resistance story. Look at verse 11. Look at what happens. While they were going, behold, this is the soldiers, "uh, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Now... You got to know why the guards were there in the first place. Maybe you never knew this about the story, but you back up to chapter 27 and you see that the reason the guards were at the tomb is because the religious leaders were concerned about the resurrection. They were concerned because they knew that Jesus had been going around preaching that he was going to raise from the dead. And if it happened, this is going to change everything. They knew that the Easter message would would change the crowds and how the crowds interact with the religious leaders. And it it wasn't necessarily that they believed it would happen. In fact, they say, we're concerned that the disciples are going to steal the body and fake the resurrection. And then everybody's going to think that he was resurrected and it's going to ruin everything. And so the religious leaders go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they collude with Pilate. And they say, this is what's going to happen. You don't want that to happen, right? Right. We don't either. So could you send some guards who could seal the tomb and guard the tomb to make sure nobody takes the body? That was their plan. That's why the guards are there. The guards are there because they're afraid of the Easter message. And then their worst nightmare happens. And then now the guards go back to the religious leaders, the chief priests, and and they say, hey, uh, this is what happened. And the cover story begins. Look at what happens in verse 12. It says, And when they had assembled with the elders and the taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, Judas was bribed already. Now the soldiers are bought off. Right? You see this thread through the passion narrative of Jesus that money motivates. Money motivates, and, and there wasn't a dispute really about what happened. I mean, it never says that they didn't believe what happened. Think about this. The soldiers, they saw it with their own eyes. They saw the angel. They saw the empty tomb. They, they saw all of this. They go back, and the Bible says they told everybody all that happened. And so they made a conscious choice, A conscious choice not to believe it. Why? Because the truth was a threat. The truth was a threat to their comfort. The truth meant that their life had to change. And so they crafted an alternate story that would keep them comfortable because the cost was too high. You hear that? See, Jesus on the throne is a threat. He is a threat to the status quo. Dr. Edward Miller, he was the former CEO of Johns Hopkins University, he speaks about this this same human problem. It's a very common human problem. And he, in his context, he's talking about uh, heart disease, severe heart disease. And, you know, working in the medical field at Johns Hopkins, both the hospital and the university, uh, he's very aware of all these issues. He said that in our country at the time he was making these comments, there was about 600,000 cases every year in the U.S. of severe heart disease. And all these people, that many of them had to undergo uh, bypass surgery. And he was talking about how after the surgery, a few years later, uh, about 50% would need to repeat the surgery. And he was saying that's for various reasons. I mean, it's a complex issue. He said even the trauma of the surgery itself can cause problems uh, that require the surgery to be repeated. He said, but the vast majority of the time, it was avoidable. The vast majority of the time, the reason it had to be repeated is because people didn't change their lifestyle. And so this is the comment he made. Listen to what he said. He said, if you look at people after coronary artery bypass grafting, two years later, 90% of them have not changed their lifestyle. That's been studied over and over and over again. And so we're missing some link in here. Even though they know they have a life-threatening disease... And they know they must change or die for whatever reason, they refuse. For whatever reason, they refuse. Listen, you and I know why. You and I know why. It's because change is is a real threat to comfort. Change, Change is always a real threat to comfort and it's no different with Jesus. It's no different with Jesus, right? The the way things are can't remain the same if Jesus is alive. Jesus is a threat to everything in this world. He's a threat to the systems of our culture. He's a threat to the political and religious elite. He's a threat to the powerful and influential. He's a threat to the comfortable and complacent. He's a threat to the institutions that oppress the marginalized in the name of the marginalized Savior. He's a threat to our political parties who quote scripture when it's convenient but are quiet when it's costly. He's a threat to the wealthy who push patience and not justice. Make no mistake about it. Jesus was crucified on a cross because he was a threat to the status quo. Listen, he wasn't just a threat to some people out there. He was a threat to you and me right here. He was a threat to our own personal comfort. Right? No one is off the hook. The the gospel story of resurrection means that every single one of us need new life. That's what it means. It means that every single one of us stand in a a position where we've been given the doctor's diagnosis, change or die. That's what the resurrection means. It means that the only way out of our state of death and, and what we're headed towards is if Jesus gives us life. And so Jesus says this. Jesus says, I didn't come for for the healthy. I didn't come for the righteous. He said, they have no need of a physician. They have no need of a savior. I came for the sick. I came for the sinner. I came for people like me and you. That's that's who he came for. He came for the sinner who who wanted nothing to do with him, who who wanted to kill him, who wanted to get rid of him, who wanted to deny that they even needed him. That's who he came for. And so I want to ask you today before we move on, what what resistance story are you telling? What resistance story have you cultivated and crafted to keep yourself in a comfortable position? To keep yourself a comfortable distance from a, a living Jesus who if he came into your life, you know it would change everything. It might be a story that you tell yourself. It might be a story that you tell others. It might be some some rationalization of why this is not real. But here's the first step of having a relationship with Jesus. The Bible calls it repentance. It just means to to change the story. Mm -hmm. Repentance means to change your mind. It means to change the story, to say, I'm going to put... Put to death that story that that I've been telling myself, and I'm going to believe the story that God tells me. The story of Jesus, which his life was necessary for me. His death was necessary for me. His resurrection was necessary for me. This is the story of Jesus that, though it's a threat to your life, the life as you have it now, the life that you think you want, it really is an invitation to a better life. What Jesus calls... The abundant life it's an invitation to die to the old but take up something even greater to take up a life that that changes everything that you've ever known and this kind of great reversal is what happens next the story this when we embrace that when we turn from it and and trust this this radical story of the resurrection it creates a reversal look at verse 18 look at what happens Uh, and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven And on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Right? These are the famous last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, what we often call the the Great Commission. And and what's interesting to me that I want to draw out today is the context. The context that Matthew gives these these, uh, words in is coming right on the back end in direct contrast to this resistance story. Right? You think about it this way: you have this, this story being told by the religious leaders and by the soldiers that, that keeps them in authority. It keeps them comfortable. It keeps them in a position of power. It keeps them the, the Lord of their life. And then Jesus, right after that, clarifies: no, no, no. All authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Go therefore. I mean, think about it. This this peasant from Nazareth, this rejected rabbi, this imposter, as the Pharisees called him in chapter 27, this crucified criminal, as the the crowds wanted to crown him, This, this is the one who tells the greatest reversal story in history, that he's been raised from the dead with all power in his hands. He's saying, you may resist me, you may reject me, you may even kill me, but you can't dethrone me. You can't dethrone me. This Jesus raised to life with all authority from the Father says, Therefore, go. Did you miss it? Therefore, go. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to powerful people. He's talking to his disciples. They were fishermen. They were women in a culture that was anti-women. They were people who were in the margins. That They were people who were oppressed. They were being told by society this story that you don't matter. Your life doesn't matter. You are uneducated. You're unnoticed. You're unwanted. But Jesus says, therefore, go. Therefore, Go. And when they begin to take on this name of Jesus and they begin to proclaim the resurrection of of Jesus, something happens. And we're told in Acts chapter 4 that when the leaders then see them again, it says they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, this radical reversal happens because They had been with Jesus, the resurrected king, the resurrected authority, the resurrected God. These powerful, these powerless people now had power because they had been with Jesus. And Jesus promised, I will be with you. See, the resurrection is a reversal of power, a reversal of power. King Louis the Great was crowned uh, King of France at age five. And he reigned for 72 years as king, the longest reign of any European monarch in history, 72 years. He, he was the definition of power. I mean, people didn't want to mess with him. They didn't question him. He, he even made the famous statement, I am the state. Like he, he just declared, I am power itself. I am the most highly exalted. I am the greatest. He called himself the great. He gave him his own name. And, of course, his life, like all of ours, eventually ended. And at his funeral, it was just as elegant as his reign. It was just as pompous as his reign. He, he had a casket made of pure gold. He, he held his, his service in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. It was, it was this beautiful, ornate setting. And, and he invited thousands of people to come mourn and, and, and rejoice in his life. But he gave them very specific directions about his funeral. He wanted no lights, no, no candles except for one. One dimly lit candle hanging over his casket. And so thousands of people walk into the building. It's dark except one candle at the front so that all eyes would be on him. And that it was this dramatic representation that he was the greatest of all. And... Uh, when it comes time for the service to begin, the, the pastor who was overseeing it, Bishop Massillon, he walks up to the front of the, of the sanctuary, stands up at the pulpit, opens up his Bible. He leans over the casket like this and blows out the candle. And everybody gasps. And he says, only God is great. Only God is great. I mean, what happens at the resurrection is it's heaven's declaration only God is great. Yes. Only God is great. That, that's what God is declaring. It's the Father blowing out the candle of sin and death to declare only I am great. Yes. Only I have all power over life and death. Only God has all power in heaven and earth. Only God has all power to humble the exalted and, and exalt the humble. Only God and God alone is great. And so, the resurrection is his declaration that no power of sin can hold him down because only he is great. No power of resistance can hold him down because only he is great. No power of this world can hold him down because only he is great. No power of even death, our greatest enemy, can hold him down because only he is great. See, the story of resurrection, the story of resurrection is the power to reverse anything and everything. That's what it's about. It's the power to change any story that you might find yourself in. And as we close today, I want to ask you, what story do you find yourself in? It might be a story of depression. It might be a story of addiction. It might be a story of doubt. It might be a story of pain and hurt. I don't, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know how sin and suffering has captured your life. But I know this, whatever story you find yourself in, the resurrection story, Is greater the resurrection story is greater it's God saying it might have influence in your life it might have affected your life it might have even shaped you in, in different ways but it is not the greatest story only God is great and the resurrection story is whatever your story is he can shape it by his story he can shape it because it's Jesus's story he's inviting you into a story that is his life his death His resurrection that becomes yours. And so however you've screwed up your life, it's His life for yours. However you should have suffered for your sin, it's His death for yours. However you are hopeless in the life of despair that you find yourself in, it's His resurrection for yours. The good news of the gospel is my life for you. Jesus for you. And so whatever your story is, there's a greater story. And he says, trust it, embrace it. He says, come and see, and then you can go and tell. Mm. Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that as we uh, are humbled by your word to to bring us into knowing uh, that story, that God, you would give us the gift of faith. Give us the gift of faith to, to trust a story that is so... Uh, in contrast, so, so competing against the story of this world, the story of our circumstances, the story of our experiences, of our sins, of our failures. It takes faith. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us those eyes of faith to trust the story that you tell. And may that story, the resurrection of Jesus, change us forever. You pray in Jesus' name. Amen.